0: Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 22 to 26. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God God endures forever. Well, good afternoon. Uh, My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and uh, I want to apologize right off the bat because uh, if my voice is a little off, uh, yesterday I was on the sidelines to support our sisters at the Women's Flag Football Tournament in New Jersey. And uh, it was one of the most exciting sporting events that I've ever seen in person. Uh, It was crazy. We're down by six and it was at the end of the game, in the last minute, they score a touchdown and convert the extra point to win. It It was so strange seeing an exilic team win a game. But it was incredible. Uh, I'm so proud of this team. Huge thank you and shout out to our sisters for for representing our church so well yesterday. Let's give it up for them. Come on. And if you're joining us for the first time today, we've been going through a sermon series on 2 Timothy, and we're calling it From Embers to a flame, from embers to a flame. For those of you who might be experiencing some spiritual dryness or you feel as though God is is really distant or you're kind of just going through the motions of faith, our hope and prayer is that through this series, God might rekindle a fire of faith in your heart. And I was giving this some thought this past week as I was preparing this sermon are you familiar with the Ember mug? The Ember mug? They, they sell it at Costco and online. Uh, it's this mug that maintains kind of the, the temperature of whatever beverage is in it. You can actually set it on your phone, your desired temperature, and then the mug will keep your beverage at that temperature. It makes a great gift for someone like my wife who is constantly having to reheat her morning coffee because she forgets about it. But this is an actual event that happened last week. Uh, I'm not making this up. My dad, uh, he's old, he took an ember mug and he put it in the microwave, which it turns out you're not supposed to do. And this led to a small fire in my sister's apartment. Literally, an ember turned into a flame. (laughs) I know it's, it's really on the nose, but I, I prayed this week that our, our expectation for what God could do, it, it goes beyond just kind of reheating us, but I prayed that the Holy Spirit would use this sermon series to be the microwave that causes a fire in our hearts and in our church, and in today's passage, we come to a very important topic Especially in our social media saturated, heavily politicized, and increasingly tribalistic world. How to disagree. How to disagree. Paul is writing a letter to Timothy, who's like a son to him. Timothy's a young man, He's, he's prone to all sorts of temptations, and he starts by telling Timothy in verse 22 Timothy, flee youthful passions. What does that mean? Flee youthful passions. I hear this verse used a lot to refer to fleeing sexual temptations or lust, but I think that this is actually much broader than that. It refers to any sinful urges or desires that are associated with immaturity, So given what Paul talks about in the very next verse, it's it's more likely that Paul is telling Timothy here, Timothy, don't be a hothead. Timothy, don't lose your temper. Don't pick fights. I think it's more of that than telling him, avoid sexual sin. And as I look around this room, I see a lot of young people who might need a similar encouragement. We might be struggling with how to disagree in a constructive way rather than an immature way. In these verses, Paul tells Timothy to remember four things when disagreeing with others. Here they are. Be right, be wise, be kind, and be missional. Four things. The Christian way to disagree, it should always embody these four things. So let's take a look at each of them from our passage today. First, Paul tells Timothy to be right. Before you go and point out someone else's faults or sins, make sure you are living rightly. Focus on you before you focus on someone else. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 7, "'Judge not, lest you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you.'" Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, "'Let me take the speck out of your eye when there's the log in your own eye.'" You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus tells us that before we're to point out the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye, we should first address and remove the log that is in our own eye. Now, what does this mean? I can see how somebody might have a speck in their eye. We've all probably had at some point dust or some particle get in our eye and irritate it. But how does someone get a log in their eye? And what Jesus is saying is this, both you and the other person, you both have specks in your eye, but to you, your speck should look huge because it's right there because of its proximity. If it's this close to your eye, because it's this close, it should look huge. This should be all you see. My sin, relative to someone else's sin, should always look way, way bigger. The way you can see clearly to address and help your brother is to first address your own sin. And this is what Paul is saying to Timothy. You be right. You worry about you. You address your sin. You deal with your issues. If you don't do that, you're not going to see clearly. You won't be able to help anyone else, and you'll be a hypocrite. So he first tells Timothy, Timothy, flee youthful passions. Flee from sin and temptation. Flee, run away. Do you you notice there's an urgency here? There's a desperation. There should be an urgency. But all too often, we tend to be hypervigilant when it comes to the sins of others. And at the same time, downright complacent when it comes to our own sins our attitude toward our sin has to be desperate. Get away from it, as far away from it as possible, and as fast as possible, run, run. And this is a really important question for us this afternoon. How do I view my sin? If you've lived in New York City for any amount of time, You have likely dealt with roaches in your apartment. Imagine coming home one day from a really long day at class or at work. You're exhausted, you cannot wait for that moment when your head hits the pillow. So you open the door, you turn on the light, and what do you see? Of course, you see a little roach scurry underneath your couch. Now what do you do in this moment? a lot of us because we've seen it before if we're tired enough we'll say i'm going to get you tomorrow buddy and we'll go to bed right we won't like it but we'll go to bed now what if you open the door you turn on the light and instead of a roach there was a rattlesnake in your living room how many of us would go to bed I think we would all flee. Is sin a few roaches in the apartment? Is it a minor nuisance? Or is it a rattlesnake? Is it a deadly threat? The question is, is how comfortable are you peaceably coexisting with sin in your life? Paul tells Timothy, run for your life. Run. But dealing with sin, it's not just refraining from sin. It's not depriving yourself of what you really want, but it's pursuing that which is better. Paul doesn't just tell Timothy to flee from something. He tells him to flee to something. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Dealing with sin, it has to be both a fleeing and a pursuing because if you're just refraining from doing bad things but you're not actively embracing things like righteousness faith love and peace you might as well be doing the bad things remember who paul was before he met jesus he was a pharisee and if there's one thing pharisees are good at it's fleeing from youthful passions Paul was really good at that. But you know what he wasn't good at? He wasn't pursuing love and peace. He was actually pursuing Christians in order to imprison them. And notice that Paul deliberately groups these four things together. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And what he's saying is this, they come in a package. You can't truly be pursuing righteousness and faith if you're not also pursuing love and peace. And Paul, he didn't see this when he was a Pharisee, before he met Jesus. It was a major blind spot for him. And you know what? We all have major blind spots when it comes to our own sin. I remember I was, I was leading a community group once, and the topic was sin or repentance or something like that. And uh, one sister spoke up, and she said, you know, when, when I repent, I, I can't really think of too many things to repent of. I just, I don't feel like I've, I've been that bad this week. And I said, ask your husband. He'll, tell, he'll give you a whole list. When it comes to our sin, we have blind spots. And this is why Paul says, flee from the bad stuff, pursue the good stuff, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. He's telling Timothy, Timothy, don't do this alone. Do it along with those who are walking with the Lord rightly. Timothy needs support. He needs accountability around him to make sure that he's not missing anything. He needs the wisdom of others to show him what he's not seeing objectively. And what's true is, more often than not, the more right you think you are, the more wrong you may actually be. Paul, before he met Jesus, he thought he was more right than everybody else. This led him to hunt Christians, to imprison them, persecute them, and even kill them. How wrong could you be? But after he meets Jesus, how does Paul see himself? In his first letter to Timothy, he says this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is saying that he is the foremost sinner in the entire world. This is how he views his own sin. And the reason Jesus saved him was to show the world, if I could save Paul, I could save anybody. Do you view your sin this way? Do you believe, truly believe, that you need grace more than anybody else does? Does your sin horrify you? Does it appall you? Do you hate your sin? That is the posture of a genuinely repentant believer. This is the first point be right be right the second point is to be wise verse 23 have nothing to do with foolish ignorant controversies you know that they breed quarrels paul is saying we have to be wise about picking our battles we need wisdom to know when to take issue when to let things go you ever get into an argument with somebody and it gets really heated, and after a while, you don't even remember what started the argument. This happens in marriage all the time, not my marriage. (laughs) Couples, they usually don't have these explosive arguments about huge philosophical differences, but it's always tiny, insignificant, little things that go nuclear. So much of the conflict in our lives, it can be avoided if we just have a bit of wisdom To let small things go. But it's not just wisdom to let things go. It's wisdom to know when something needs to be said. Because some of the unhealthiest marriages I've seen have zero fights. Why? Because it's unhealthy just to internalize everything, just to avoid conflict. We need to be wise. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, don't get involved in foolish And stupid controversies that aren't really important. Don't get involved with things that will breed unnecessary quarrels. So, here's a question What breeds quarrels for you? Can any of that be avoided? And here, I think it's helpful to know what are some of my triggers? What are some patterns in my life that I can identify that lead me to quarrels? When I do premarital counseling with couples, probably the most important thing, the most memorable thing I do with them, is I go over how can we best avoid areas of conflict and how can we communicate well? Paul tells Timothy, avoid quarrels, but notice he never tells Timothy to avoid disagreeing because there is a huge difference between a disagreement and a quarrel a disagreement and a quarrel <clears throat> and so much of that is in the tone Last Sunday my family we went to my uncle's wedding my uncle's wedding Uh, He's a bit older, so this is his second marriage. And uh, my oldest son, Andy, he had some questions. He said, "Why, why is he getting married? He's old. So I had to sit him down and I had to have a talk with him about marriage and how sometimes couples can get divorced and remarried. And then he said to me, Well, I hope you and Amma don't get a divorce. And I said, why would you say that? And then, this is how kids burn you all the time. He said, well, because I hear you guys fight all the time. (laughs) And I said, never. What do you mean? And I had to sit him down. I had to, uh, to explain to him the difference between disagreeing and fighting. And I said, you know what fighting is? That's what you and your brothers do every day. Do you ever see mom and dad doing what you do? And he got it right away. He said, oh no, 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 I, you don't. And I said, good. Um, and the most important thing for you to remember is this, don't ever tell people at church that mom and dad fight all the time. <laughs> When does a disagreement become a quarrel? Look at verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. The difference between a disagreement and a quarrel, it's in the tone and the posture. Don't be quarrelsome. Instead, be kind, be patient, be gentle. If you have to correct someone, do it with gentleness. The moment the tone changes, kindness is abandoned, you are now quarrelsome. So posture and tone are everything here. So how do we maintain a kind and gentle tone, especially when we've been wronged? or hurt in significant ways by others. And I think the key to this is to not lose objectivity. We're not kind when we lose objectivity. We we see ourselves as justified and our opponent as unjust. So this leads us to get angry and quarrelsome. But if we were objective, I think it would change the tone of the disagreement. So this is something that I suggest to couples when I do counseling with them. I say, the next time you get upset at your spouse, ask yourself, before you bring it up with them, ask yourself these two questions. First question, when was the last time I did what I'm angry at them for doing? Okay? The second question is, when was the last time he or she didn't do what I'm angry at them for doing now. And the reason I thought of these two questions is because I was driving once, and in the same trip, within five minutes, I honked at a car in front of me for driving too slowly, and then I got mad at a car behind me for honking at me for driving too slowly. And I thought, why am I angry in both scenarios here? It's because I've lost objectivity. So let's see how these two questions may help prevent a quarrel. This past week, we had a frustrating morning at the Jew household. My kids were dragging their feet, they were going to be late to school, and I'm going to confess I wasn't super patient that morning. I was upset at them for being late. So I was saying, come on, let's go. We're gonna be late, why do you take so long all the time? And they talked back and they said, well, Father, actually, yesterday we were not late. The day before, we were not late. (laughs) And I said, but Monday you were late and now it's a quarrel. Now it's a quarrel. What if I had thought about these two questions before I tried to correct them? Question one, what if I thought about it and I said, well, I actually woke up later today than I should have. And if I'm going to be honest, I do that a lot. Question two, they're right. They're not always like this. This didn't happen yesterday or the day before. I shouldn't say that they're always late. If I do this in my head before I have the conversation, the conversation begins very differently. And I could say, hey, guys, I woke up late today too. So it's not just you, it's all of us. I know you're usually on time, but today we all need to hurry up a bit. Let's go, okay? Let's be better. Do you see the difference? The difference between a disagreement and a quarrel was objectivity, which led to a difference in tone. So I tell this to couples all the time. When you have to take issue with something your spouse did, start with you. Start with you. Even if it's 99% their fault and 1% your fault, start with the 1%. That will change the conversation entirely. Because if you begin the conversation with, why do you always do this? Then their walls go up. They go immediately into defense mode. But if you start the conversation by saying, hey, I know I'm guilty of this all the time. I know you're actually really trying in this area, I see you trying, or you say something like, hey, I may not be understanding the situation correctly, so I'd love to hear more from you, but can we talk about something? You begin the conversation this way, you're letting the other person know that you are coming in love and peace. You're not coming to threaten and harm. This sets the tone. It prevents it from becoming a quarrel. Maintaining objectivity is so important. So this is what Paul does. Timothy, stay objective. But Paul tells Timothy, be truly objective, not just now, not just for this moment, but view this disagreement in the much, much bigger picture. You know what really helps you pick your battles well? Knowing that your time here on earth is really short and that eternal life awaits you. So for example, if you know that you're going to die tomorrow, you probably won't be angry at your family for 99% of the things that you normally get upset about. You wouldn't waste time being quarrelsome with people And what Paul tells Timothy is this, there is a missional component to disagreeing well. Verse 25, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Imagine if someone hurt your feelings by saying something rude to you. You get upset, but then they walk away and they're about to be hit by a bus. What kind of person would you be if you just let that person get hit and not try to warn them or save them because of what was said to you? the appropriate thing to do in this situation is to do everything you can to save this person from death. Whatever was said to you or done to you is probably less important than this person's life. And here's a reminder, church, that we are living life on earth at the doorstep of eternity. If what the Bible says is true... Then we have a short time here, a handful of decades left before we spend eons upon eons in either heaven or hell. When we are wronged by someone, we have a choice. We can either try to make them pay or we can forgive them. If that person doesn't know Jesus, then the truth is that a far greater payment will be exacted from them for all eternity in judgment. The truth is that person deserves your pity much more than they deserve your criticism or your judgment. And if they're believers, if they're Christians, then that debt that is owed to you, guess what? That debt has been paid for by Jesus The same debt that was also paid on your behalf. Why why do we get angry when we're wronged? You know, anger itself is not sinful. The Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. There is such a thing as righteous anger. God gets angry in the Bible, but he doesn't sin. But there's a very fine line and a very big difference between righteous anger and self-righteous anger. Do you know what that difference is? Righteous anger prioritizes others. Self-righteous anger prioritizes me. So if someone were to hurt one of my children, I would get angry because I love them so much. How do we avoid self-righteous anger? And I think the key is this, when we are offended or wronged, let's train ourselves to think about that person first, rather than to think about the way I've been hurt. Paul tells Timothy that maybe they may come to their senses, escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Is your opponent captured and ensnared by the devil? What is more important to you, that your dignity is preserved, that the debt owed to you is repaid, or that this person is freed from sin and saved Paul is telling Timothy that when there is a conflict, there is a prime opportunity for God to work. God can use your kindness, your patience, your gentleness to bring about repentance and salvation in your opponent. You know, being missional, it's not just telling people about Jesus, it's not just going on mission trips. Do you know how powerful kindness can be? Especially in a city like ours that's not known for its kindness, its patience, its gentleness. Do you know how alien, how noticeable, how attractive our kindness, our patience, our gentleness can be? What a force of good it can be. But ultimately, this sermon can't just be about me saying to you, hey, the way to disagree is to um, be right, be wise, be kind, be missional, go do it. Because we're all going to fail. This kind of goes against the way that we're wired because of sin. It goes against every natural inclination that we have. Paul Tripp says that no one gives grace better than the one who has received it the most. And the truth is that you have been forgiven a much greater debt if you believe in Jesus than you will ever be owed by someone else. The moment we forget that, we lose objectivity. We think we're better, more just than the one we're disagreeing with. But here's the truth. No one had a bigger disagreement with you than God. Sin is cosmic rebellion against the faithful and loving creator. And we were born into sin as enemies of God. And how did God treat us as enemies? Well, Jesus was right. He was perfectly right and righteous. No sin or blemish. And we were not. But... He was kind to us. He was patient and gentle and lowly and humble. He obeyed the law on our behalf. He took our sin upon himself as he died on the cross. And even as he died, he prayed for the forgiveness of those who were killing him. Talk about picking your battles. The battle he picked, it was not against us but against our sin and death. So he was missional. His mission was our salvation to free us from the snare of the devil, captivity in sin. And as Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered once and for all the devil, sin, and death. If this is good news to you, then you can be a conduit of grace to even your worst enemies. You can disagree without quarreling and you will be amazed at what that can do in your life, in the life of the one you're disagreeing with, and in the lives of the people who are witnessing you disagree well. Let us be known as people who disagree differently than those who don't know God. And let that be a powerful testament to who Jesus is. Let that attract this world to Jesus. Can we all agree to disagree well? Let's pray.